This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Michael Johnston, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jeff Kidder about his new book, Parker and the City, Risk, Masculinity, and Meaning in a Postmodern Sport. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling me a bit about yourself. Sure. I'm an associate professor of sociology at Northern Illinois University, and uh, the the book we're talking about today, Parkour and the City, uh, is my most recent book. Before that, I published uh, Urban Flow, uh, Bike Messengers in the City, which is about the uh, occupational subculture of bicycle messengers, who are people that deliver uh, packages and other sort of physical, tangible items uh, in sort of the dense urban core of downtown areas. And so I went from that project into this uh, the newer project about uh, young, young, young pe- mostly young people that do uh, parkour. Excellent. Somewhat of a risk-taking behavior in itself with the delivery, um, delivery business and uh, uh, biking. So uh, excellent. That sounds like a, a, perfect, uh, a perfect intersection to move into your current study. So, so tell me how you uh, came about conducting the study, uh, Parker in the city. Yeah. So I, uh, like I, like I was saying, I did my dissertation on bicycle messengers. And one of the focuses of that book is trying to understand how this occupational subculture and really this sort of lifestyle subculture that emerge emerges out of the occupation, how it is influenced by the actual physical structures of the city. In other words, you uh, you see a, a fair number of bicycle messengers in older, sort of basically older cities, cities that uh, developed their downtown cores sort of prior to World War II. So New York City, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Chicago. These are the places where you have a lot of uh, delivery by bicycle, whereas sort of newer cities, Miami, Houston, uh, Atlanta, there might be a small number of bike messengers, but you have less of this occupation. And, and part of or the main reason for that is that uh, this sort of newer post-World War II urban development is sprawled out. So it's just not as useful to have a, a bike messenger who can dart in and out of gridlock car traffic delivering things. And so that got me interested in how actual subcultures and people can find meaning in how the actual 
development of urban space influences the sorts of subcultures that can or cannot exist there and the way this, that people can, in some ways, counterintuitively make use of urban infrastructure. So I, I focused on that with bike messengers and then finishing that project. I knew precious little, but I'd heard of this thing called parkour, uh, which is basically uh, it's both a it's both a sport. It's, there's also a philosophy that kind of uh, is, is involved with it that basically it's about trying to sort of figure out ways to get from point A to point B, just using the human body and doing so in, in creative uh, ways. You know, so it's not just about walking a straight line down the sidewalk, but trying to figure out, okay, could I climb up this wall over here and then vault over this bench and then scale up uh, this staircase and sort of hop over the railing in order to get from point A to point B. So I, I knew that this thing parkour sort of existed. And because I had this pre-existing interest in so subcultures and social worlds and the ways that the built environment, again, can be kind of counterintuitively appropriated by individuals in order to facilitate new meanings and new, uh, new ways of, of movement and new ideas, I, I thought it would make sense to to, to, to study people that were doing this parkour. So parkour did not originate in the United States. Uh, I learned that from reading your, uh, reading that first chapter of your book, who were the originators of parkour and sort of how did it develop and, uh, soon evolve into a sport here in the United States? Parkour has a, an interesting kind of history and depending, depending on how far back you want to go, uh, there, I mean, there are, again, there's all sorts of, it's hard to sort of make a, a definitive point, but most commonly people talk about uh, Georges Herbert, who was uh, a French uh, military man and a sort of early proponent of physical fitness. And this is at the turn of the last century. And he developed what he called the natural method, which was uh, like other, like basically like his contemporary, a lot of his contemporaries uh, he had this sort of concern that urban urban life was leading to sloth and immorality among young people. And so he developed this natural method, which was this idea that you could become both physically fit and spiritually fit by going out into the wilderness and learning to move over obstacles and move quickly and efficiently and fluidly over sort of rough terrain. And uh, this is also where uh, obstacle courses, like military obstacle courses, uh, kind of come up through this kind of idea. Um, and so uh, there's the natural method. There's also connected to this is parkour. Uh, so parkour just meaning like the route for a race or like an obstacle course. And so this uh, Herbert's ideas influenced a lot of uh, both the French military and sort of French culture. And so, uh, flat, moving forward into, uh, into the 20th century, uh, there are the sort of two main people usually given credit for creating what is today called parkour or free running. Free running is just another term for parkour. Uh, there's David Bell and David Bell's father, Raymond Bell, had been uh, a firefighter with the French military and he had trained in the, the parkour and was uh, pretty successful at it. And uh, Be uh, the younger Bell, David Bell, uh, 
he had a friend, Sebastian Foucault, and they also had a, it's a much larger group than that, but these are the Foucault and Bell are the most prominent names. They sort of took what they'd learned from Raymond Bell and Jeff's older, or David's older brother, Jeff, and they sort of adopted these ideas about obstacle course training or the parkour, and over time developed it into what would become known today as parkour. And yeah, I'm, I'm, that's, that's a very abbreviated history and there's a lot of uh, nuance, but we can, we can skip over that and just sort of say that it has a connection to sort of turn of the century ideas about physical fitness that, that were then appropriated and changed around by a group of basically uh, sort of suburban French teenagers in the 1990s. And the interesting piece is the um, the history of France and the history of the United States are visibly different. How did the inverse urban logics of suburban France um, have an impact on the development of parkour in France um, and differently here in the United States? Because based on an industrial sort of society here in the United States, much of the urban areas are in the central city, whereas in France, it is very suburban. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point is that, so David Bell, Sebastian Foucault, and again, there was a larger sort of group of friends that uh, were developing in the, in the 1990s, again, what would become parkour. Uh, they, they were from the, the, the banlieues of, of France, which, are, which is suburbs, but in the French context, suburbs are very different than what we think of in the American context. And so as you mentioned, in the American context, we tend to think of suburbs as uh, rather affluent places, and we think about poverty being concentrated in the inner cities. There's all sorts of ways in which that's not actually true for the U.S. either, but just speaking sort of broadly and in stereotypes, that's how we think about it. But in France, uh, it's the the, uh, the banlieues, which, which is where uh, the sort of working class housing as well as uh, immigration had been channeled after World War II. Basically, uh, French cities tried to sort of preserve their, their sort of inner core for more affluent and native-born uh, French people. And as immigrants were, were coming into the country, again, especially after World War II in the 1950s, 1960s, there was a real effort on the part of the, of the French government to locate uh, these new sort of marginalized populations outside the, the urban core. And also, this is also a time uh, where sort of brutalist architecture was popular in the 1950s and 60s is when this sort of uh, very geometric, concrete uh, style of architecture was popular across across the, uh, the Western world. And so these new uh, public housing developments that were being built in the 1950s and 60s were following this sort of brutalist style. And this actually worked out quite well for, for the group that was developing parkour. So they, again, had this interest in learning how to move creatively and appropriating parts of, of the built environment in order to, again, climb up walls, jump off walls, scale things, uh, vault over things. In this sort of geometric, brutalist architecture that, that really defined a lot of the new cities that were being built or had been built in the 1960s. And so, uh, you know, these people would have been young, youngsters in the 1970s and 80s. And so this, uh, 
this sort of geometric concrete landscape really, uh, really fed into or helped them transfer what had been, you know, a parkour of the military obstacle course into this sort of new form of urban movement. And then early 2000s, it started to gain popularity uh, in the uh, in America, and um, we're sort of fast forwarding a bit here. Uh, however, um, as it started to gain popularity and become more formal, uh, as with uh, any popular uh, any popular sport or any part of mass uh, mass society. How did uh, overt commercialization, competitiveness, and entrepreneurship impact the purity of parkour as a lifestyle sport? So you had this group. You had this group who was doing sort of training in this uh, this discipline that they were developing, but uh, it's not really clear other than how much people knew about it outside of themselves. But in the late nineteen nineties, they were able to. They sort of became public with what they had done. Uh, uh, David Bell's older brother, Jeff Bell, like his father, Raymond Bell was a firefighter. And uh, every year there was this sort of firefighter exposition uh, or expo where firefighters would sort of show off their, their skills. And Jeff Bell invited his younger brother, David, basically said, hey, you and your friends are doing all this amazing stuff. You know, you're really talented. Why don't you sort of show off your skills at uh, at this firefighter exhibition. And so uh, David Bell, Sebastian Foucault, and their group, they call themselves the Yamakaze, uh, which is a, it, that word sort of sounds Japanese, but it's actually a, an African language word that, uh, and they have sort of appropriated this term. They call themselves the Yamakaze. They sort of dressed up as ninjas of sorts and, and did all these sort of stunts at this, at this expo. And uh, from there, uh, there became quite a bit of media attention. Uh, Luke Besson, who did uh, The Fifth Element, had saw one of these early TV coverages of the Yamakaze and wanted the group to be in his movies. And so uh, very quickly at the end of the, the 1990s, beginning of 2000s, uh, what, had become, what had been, as far as we can tell, a rather isolated thing started to develop an international uh, reputation. Uh, 2001, Ripley's Be- Believe It or Not, that American TV show, did a feature on Yamakaze. Nike did an ad campaign with several members of the group. And then there were some documentaries and other things. Uh, and started uh, being not just a French thing, but uh, English language. Uh, looks like the Nike ad and, and some British television things. And so this really uh, helped move it from being, again, a rather obscure thing that a group of young Frenchmen was doing. Did the entrepreneurial interests of Tracers improve or damage the purity of the sport? Oh, yeah, yeah. I sort of forgot that part of the question. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I I mean, within the philosophy of parkour, there's definitely – so people that are – that do parkour themselves oftentimes refer to themselves as Tracers or freerunners – that idea of sort of purity or staying true or real to parkour is really important to them. As a sociologist, uh, looking at uh, this this social world, looking at this sport, uh, I, I tend not to to get hung up on on those sort of ideas of of purity. 
but uh, it's certainly true that uh, that both the original members of the Yamakaze, who then sort of splintered off into their own uh, different things, like so David Bell and Sebastian Foucault kind of went their own ways. Other members of the Yamakaze stayed together, but they clearly wanted to find some way to make a living off of what they were doing. And so the first sort of uh, avenue for making a living doing parkour was basically being an actor, being a, a stunt person. Um, and so, as I mentioned, there was Nike ads featuring uh, Fukan and Bell and others doing parkour. Uh, there was a, a French film called District 13 that starred David Bell, where basically he was this sort of action hero doing his own rather remarkable stunts, doing parkour. Uh, throughout the movie, uh, and some other examples like that. And so this sort of first wave of, of, or the first generation of parkour, the way to make a living doing it was to basically be an actor slash model slash stunt person. Um, in the sort of second wave of, of parkour, because there's a really limited number of people that are going to be able to make money as a you know, as an actor or a, a sort of personality in parkour. Uh, so the sort of second wave that comes along in the mid 2000s is an effort to try to sort of professionalize the sport, to have competitions. There is uh, an effort to develop magazines in the same way there are skateboard magazines or surfing mag magazines. There was an effort uh, to have, you know, parkour magazines and parkour websites and merchandise, you know, shirts that say things, parkour or other sort of things. And so that was sort of the second wave. And then a sort of third wave effort at finding some way of, of making a living doing parkour has come through the creation of gyms that specialize in training people how to do parkour and also building features in order to do parkour within a sort of controlled environment of a gym and maybe in particular offering uh, classes for, for kids. So we've seen sort of different phases and efforts to make and uh, finding ways to make parkour at least somewhat profitable for some people. Yes, and it seems like as it grew, it became a place for outsiders from the sport as well to come into it and navigate the sport just as uh, uh, a person who participates in the jam session. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess sort of skipping, skipping into an important part of the social world of parkour, like you mentioned is jams. And so when people get together to do parkour, the, the, the term is called the jam. So you have a jam and that just means that you're getting a group of friends together. You're going to go someplace and you're going to enjoy uh, being with, with other tracers or free runners and doing, and doing parkour. Uh, together, kind of learning from each other. And so these gyms that have been able to develop, uh, you definitely, I mean, experienced tracers can enjoy going to a gym because you can set up obstacles in unique ways and do things you might not be able to do out in the regular parts of the city. But in particular, gyms bread and butter is having classes for, for neophytes and in particular young children. And so it's a way to learn how to do parkour without having to, you know, go into a city park and have strangers stare at you. And there's also in a gym an ability to have mats and other sort of safety implementations that uh, 
make it a little less risky. And then into chapter two, you have uh, the title of chapter two is New Prisms of the Possible. How did the virtual world, uh, as you just talked about, the sport uh, becoming more uh, public through uh, the virtual world, how did that impact the way in which local environments are conceptualized? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. And so definitely as a sociologist, one of the things that really interested me about uh, parkour once I started spending time in the community was thinking about how the how videos, in particular YouTube videos, played such a crucial role in the transmission of parkour knowledge and the development of this social world. And I should also add here that I don't think parkour is unique in this regard. In fact, I'm certain, you know, we can say parkour is not unique, that what I talk about with parkour is happening in all sorts of subcultures and social worlds. But parkour is a a good example of how uh, the sort of virtual world of the internet is influencing what people can sort of imagine about the physical, tangible worlds in which they live. And so with parkour, um, it's really very much a, a sport that has grown up with the popularization of the internet. And so YouTube has been such, well, the inter- I mean, before, even before YouTube, just uh, chat rooms and other sort of uh Virtual sites were, were absolutely crucial for, for would-be traceurs in Britain and the United States learning about the existence of this sport and trying to develop the techniques themselves. And then certainly uh, with, with YouTube and, and other sort of social media uh, technologies, you've really seen how traceurs from across the globe are able to uh, film themselves, blog about their opinions or thoughts about the philosophy of, of the sport and how that influences what people are doing in other parts of, of the world. So I studied uh, the, the parkour community in Chicago, and it was really interesting and sort of fascinating to think about how the immediate environments that the traceurs were in in Chicago were reimagined based on videos and images people were seeing from uh, Moscow or London or, you know, insert some other, some other place. Um, and so you would watch a video of some, of some uh, traceur doing some uh, maneuver in, in Manchester. And then you go out into the suburbs of Chicago and try to find similar obstacles in order for you to be able to sort of re, not exactly recreate, but to be sort of reimagining and be influenced by the types of movements you've seen from people in far off uh, lands doing things. And so it's really a way of reimagining your immediate environment through this virtual experience that one has online. And in some ways, the uh, the traceurs in, in America had to navigate the sport um Independently from France, I, I, I remember in the book how you were talking about how early on in the forums, uh, the French traceurs would um, reject the uh, traceurs in America. Um, I don't know whether it was some sort of uh, jealousy or some sort of uh, uh, of uh, grudge that they held against 
the American Tresors, or, or what was your experience with that? This definitely predates my own uh, my own observations, but when I was talking to some of the original uh, Tresors from Chicago, people that had been there from their had been trained since the early two thousands, uh, they talked a lot about how in the early days they so a lot of a lot of early American Tresors saw first saw the sport in something like Rip, the Ripley's Believe It or Not special, which aired in two thousand one or the 2002 Nike ad campaign. And so you just sort of had this brief little something that you'd seen on television and it just really inspired people. And they're like, that's so cool. I want to go do it. But finding out information about it at this time was, was very, uh, was very murky to say the least. And so there was uh, urban free flow, which started in the early 2000s, which was a, a British uh, parkour website. And then there were a couple French websites, but not surprisingly, the French websites were in French and several of the American tracers, uh, discussed how it was very difficult for them to communicate with, with the French tracers. And even those that spoke English didn't really seem to, uh, like the idea of, of Americans or at least non-French speakers trying to get on their web forums and, and ask questions. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know what the, the, the reason behind it was, but, uh, but yeah, there was a, a sense, at least on the American side that they were, there was a little animosity, but once urban free flow, uh, again, the British site came online, then there was a forum for English speakers to, to start to develop uh, their techniques and share knowledge across, uh, across the pond. Well, the next major uh, part that your book talks about and uh, that you talk about in your book, uh, rather, and maybe a, maybe the most central piece of, of your research is about expression of self and how uh, young men um, come to age uh, through uh, the sport of parkour. So could you tell me a little bit about masculinity uh, as a part of the sport? Yeah, so so just like as I just like with the, the aspect of sort of the, the virtual – uh, virtual and the real and the role of the, the internet. Another, another thing that really stuck out with me as I was spending time in the parkour community was this sort of question of why, you know, what is about this activity that is so meaningful for, for the people practicing it? And of course, the, the obvious answer is just to say that it's fun, which it is. It's fun to do parkour. But, you know, let's trying to get behind the, what, what's fun about it, like what makes it fun, what makes this a worthwhile pursuit. And so one thing to think about is how parkour, and again, parkour is not unique here. We could talk about skateboarding. We could talk about graffiti. We could talk about any number of social worlds and subcultures in a similar way, but parkour is one way of, of exploring this issue is that one of the things that parkour allows is a performance of uh, contemporary uh, contemporary aspects of what's considered sort of an idealized masculinity, which is to say that within contemporary Western culture, men are supposed to be strong. They're supposed to be cool under pressure. They're supposed to be able to take risk and persevere through a challenge. And we see very much that in training in parkour, these masculine 
ideals uh, can be expressed, which is to say that in running, climbing, jumping, and vaulting over uh, concrete, steel, and asphalt, there's all sorts of times in which you have to show that you're cool under pressure, that you're willing to assess, assess a particular danger, and then use your physical strength and skill to make the jump and not get injured. And so I talk about these as uh, being performances of, of masculinity, which is to say it's a way of asserting one's identity as having these valued attributes that we assume are particularly masculine. Yes, and one of the most important pieces I, I believe in your uh, in your writing was distinguishing between risk taking and thrill seeking behaviors, and parkour being risk taking rather than thrill seeking. One of the things, and I guess this also gets back to uh, this the distinction between how I, as a sociologist, uh, might approach or look at this social world versus how somebody who is a tracer themselves might want to look at or talk about the social world. But, but what's very important, what, again, another thing that really sort of stuck out to me as I was studying this group. And so largely people that do parkour are uh, teenagers to their early 20s. Uh, there are certainly people that do it that are younger. There are some people that do it that are older. There are some women uh, that take part in the sport. By and large, we're talking about an activity that's dominated by young men. And uh, one of the things that surprised me, since it's been a while now, but there was a point in my life where I was a young man. <laughs> and uh, when I think about the way my friends growing up talked about things, whether we're talking about surfing or skateboarding or going to concerts and, and moshing or whatever sort of risky things young young men might do, the way that I remember people from my age group talking about these risky behaviors and the way uh, these young men involved in parkour talked about risky behaviors. It really seemed very different um, in the sense that uh, if you go to uh, parkour jams or, or training sessions, you hear a lot of people talking about risk assessment. Like that's actually the, the literal words they'll use that you might have a group together and say, okay, we need to do a risk assessment of this jump before we do it. We need to calculate uh, the risk that we're taking. And, and these kind of words come up quite a bit. Whereas I don't remember ever uh, hearing my, my friends in the, you know, growing up in the 1980s or early 90s talk in those kind of terms, right? That we did things that were maybe risky or maybe not, but I don't know if we ever said that. We might've just said, oh, that's cool, or that seems scary. Um, but yeah, there's this whole sort of rhetoric within the parkour uh, community about calculating risk, being a responsible risk taker, uh, assessing risk. And so uh, I found that particularly, uh, particularly fascinating about the group. And, and again, I, sh I should specify here that I'm very much just talking about discourse, like how it's talked about. I think that, you know, in some sort of objective sense, young people take risk, you know, and that's probably true across time. But the way people talk about risk and the way that they frame it to make it meaningful for themselves and others, that seems to, to change. And so I find it rather fascinating 
how a discourse of risk has become part of this social world. Well, this might be a good time to talk about hypermasculinity in parkour and how maybe the hypermasculine male may disregard safety, but also how uh, the parkour community may may view this guy. Yeah, so another thing that, that jumped out at me when, when studying this group is beyond uh, or sort of built into this sort of discussion about taking, you know, or assessing risk and calculating risk and, and these sort of things is also the sort of distinctions that, that people within the community make between responsible risk-taking and thrill-seeking or just being a daredevil, right? That we could imagine, you know, if, again, just sort of thinking about, uh, just sort of thinking about this group in the abstract, right? You have a group of young men who uh, go to public parks or go to some business district and they are jumping between the roofs of buildings or climbing up scaffolding and doing flips. We could easily imagine this group wanting to describe themselves as we're daredevils, we're risk takers, you know, that we're brave and, and we're wild. And that's what makes us who we are is because, because we take, you know, the sort of chances you're too scared to take that, that kind of uh, framing for what they do. But by and large, that's not what we see with people that do parkour. And of course there's exceptions, but by and large, again, people want to talk about the slow progression of skill and the fact that parkour is not dangerous at all. That's, I heard this many times from uh, people that do parkour is that there's no danger in parkour um, because people that do it are so safe and because they slow, so slowly progress their skill. And so the sort of boogeyman of, of the parkour social world is the person who doesn't take things slow, but rushes into things and is willing to push past their boundaries in order to show off for others. And again, this is all largely what I'm talking about here is about some uh, symbolism and rhetoric and a way of sort of def defining in groups and out groups. But within a community, you will find uh, efforts to sort of distinguish between the responsible risk takers and the irresponsible risk takers. And the irresponsible ones are, again, the ones that are being defined as progressing too fast or not really progressing, but just doing things without the, the adequate background to pull them off. And the formalization of this sport and professionalization of this sport has reduced the liability, um, as I recall. Is, is that correct? Uh, well, yeah. So going back to what we were talking about with the, with the gyms, um, there's a couple, couple different things going on with the gyms. Is one, it's like, like we were originally talking about, that, that opening up a gym and charging an entrance fee or offering certification in order to become a uh, a coach or, or something like that. That's a way in which entrepreneurs can uh, make a living or at least try to make a living off of a sport that doesn't really require any, any particular equipment or other things, right? That unlike mountain biking or skateboarding where you need to buy a skateboard or a bike, parkour really doesn't require anything. Some people don't even wear shoes when they train, they like training barefoot. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's selling, uh, T-shirts that say parkour or having a gym. These are the ways in which uh, run-of-the-mill entrepreneurs can maybe uh, eke out some sort of uh, some sort of living there. And then another aspect of the gym is that 
and, and I think I mentioned this a little while ago, is that the, the gyms also allow for a more controlled environment. You know, that in the gym setting, if you want to practice jumping a particular number of feet, you can move the boxes or the bars uh, that, that the gym has. You can move them around in order to get them exactly where you want them. Whereas out in the regular urban environment, you have to adapt to what, what the architect and urban planners, you know, they built the staircase X, X number of feet high. They made the, that wall X number of feet high and that's that. But in a gym, you can, you can manipulate these things, which allows you to, again, slowly progress your training. You also can put down crash pads and other things to at least limit uh, the likelihood of, of injury. And so certainly those aspects of the gym help uh, make it more, make parkour as a sport more uh, amiable to, uh, to young people, you know, children and these sort of things. It allays the fears of, uh, of parents whose maybe young children want to get involved in this sport. And also people that uh, get certified through these gyms in order to be coaches or, or trainers in parkour, that some of these gyms or, or organizations offer liability insurance and these kind of things. And so these are the ways in which parkour, as you mentioned, is becoming sort of professionalized, moving from a very informal grassroots sport to something more akin to an organized sport. And it's still it's still in the formative the formative stage, but we see how entrepreneurs and others are are working to to make parkour more of a, a formalized activity. One final question. What do you think the future of this uh, sport is going to be and the way in which people interact in this uh, risk-taking uh, sport of parkour? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question that I don't know if I have, have a good, good answer. I mean, I, I, we, can look, we can look through the past and sort of see a parkour's progression, you know, uh, but it is hard to know exactly where where it's going and the degree to which it's going to continue its its popularity. But there has been talk uh, about it being included in the Olympics, and uh, like like any any other uh, social world or subculture, there's debates within the community about whether those sort of uh, those sort of things would be a positive for the sport or whether it would sort of take away the heart or the spirit or the soul of, of the sport. And you see a similar thing with, with skateboarding is that there's been a strong contingent within skateboarding that has resisted any effort at skateboarding becoming an Olympic sport for fear that it would make the, make it too much like a, a quote unquote sport and less of a lifestyle. And we see the same same sort of questions being wrestled with among uh, people that take part in parkour, you know, to the degree to which it's to be this informal lifestyle surrounded by this philosophy about movement and humans within their environment and how much it should be a competitive sport that can be quantified in some way with a winner and a loser. Uh, how about risk-taking behavior? Uh, I know we'll talk a little bit more about uh, this in a, in a little while about uh, the research you're currently doing. But what do you think the future of risk-taking behavior is going to to be all around here in the United States and globally? 
Yeah, again, I don't know if I can if I can predict the future, but one thing that I find particularly interesting about parkour that, that we haven't discussed yet is that uh, in addition to the fact that there's sort of this rhetorical uh, framing in parkour about risk assessment and appropriate risk and calculating risk is the way in which we can use parkour to think about to think about the meaning of of risk and the way in which risk taking physical risks can become uh, significant or or relevant to someone as opposed to simply senseless danger and and again parkour is not unique any any sport or activity that involves physical risk and nearly every thing and at least involves a certain amount of risk some more than others would 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 have these sort of things but they're of course going to be different in each uh, sort of social world that we look at and so i talk about in the book about how parkour involves these rituals of symbolic safety and these are ways in which uh, what would again otherwise be considered pointless, pointless dangers or pointless uh, risk taking, is is framed and given this this sense of uh, purpose. And so, thinking about other activities or the uh, or the future of of risk taking, again, that's that's hard to say. But certainly, I would argue that uh, any time somebody's putting their life on the line or confronting the potential for a great deal of physical pain or injury that people are going to come up with, with rituals that uh, mitigate those, those fears, right? So in other words, uh, you, you develop a set of techniques to explain why these dangers are, are uh, not so dangerous and why you're able to uh, handle the risk that you're, confronting. And so in parkour, part of this is uh, using these rhetoric about responsibility and calculation. Another part is talking about gyms and how that in sort of creating a narrative about why you're a, why you are able to go and jump from this roof to that roof would be that, well, I have spent X number of hours in the gym. And because I have spent this time in the gym with a crash pad, now I can tell myself I'm prepared to go and do this uh, without the crash pad behind me. Excellent. So uh, one question that I have to, uh, to really conclude this is what is the difference between lifestyle sports and competitive sports? I mean, some of the difference is, uh, is, is rhetorical, I guess. But uh, the general idea of, of lifestyle sports, and this is really something that uh, sociologist uh, Belinda Wheaton has really spent her uh, career really uh, looking into and, and helping to find. So I'm largely just repeating her ideas, but we can think about traditional sports as being team team sports, uh, competitive based sports, like sports where the main sort of focus is that there's a game in which there's a clearly defined winner and a loser, right? That we understand somebody wins a baseball game, somebody wins a soccer match. Whereas lifestyle sports, while there can be competitions with winners and losers, the sport itself is much broader than the competition. And oftentimes the competition is considered antithetical to the sort of overall goal of a lifestyle sport. So surfing, there are surfing competitions, but surfers would say that the essence of surfing 
is not in the competition, but in, you know, going out and, and riding waves and being with your fellow surfers and, and learning the, the ocean and, and learning the techniques and having fun while surfing, right? Uh, whereas traditional team sports are largely based around the sort of focus on how does the team or the individual win a particular competition. Well, again, Jeff, thank you for your time today. Um, we're all out of time, uh, but one final question. What are you working on now? Uh, yeah, so I am very interested in continuing this sort of look at uh, the ways people, basically people put meaning to their voluntary risk-taking behaviors. And so I would like to uh, study more than just parkour, but other lifestyle sports and the ways that people uh, engage in what we consider or what I could consider rites of risk and rituals of symbolic safety and how people talk about and frame their risk-taking in order to make it meaningful to both themselves and to others. 